key to the NFL is you have to have characters, characters like bad, questionable characters that can play, and also players of character. There has to be a balance. And Chip was just so big on character, and you saw over the couple years in Philly, it kind of went the other way because he didn't just have enough. Sometimes you just have to learn to coach Deshaun Jackson, even if he is kind of questionable. And he's not that bad. You know, it's one thing to cut a, a guy that gets arrested, a Greg Hardy situation, a domestic violence, no doubt about it. But some guys, just because they don't necessarily listen or sleep in meetings, we're, we're in college, no matter what, who you are, you're getting screamed at, you're getting yelled at. We're in the NFL. You know, if, if you know, Lawrence Taylor is sleeping through meetings, you just kind of got to let it happen. You watched them. You cheered for them. Maybe you booed them. You listened to them. You were impressed by them. Today, they share their favorite memories with you. It's the Give Me a Sense podcast. Here's your host, Mike Yam. I think for most of us, the football season, and at least for me, it's all about the college football season. It is great because it's in full swing. We've seen NFL games now, so there's all this, all these football juices that are pumping. Uh, before we get to our guests, a little bit of house cleaning right now. I know the last uh, couple weeks I've been putting this on Twitter. We've been announcing it on our shows, but Bose has sent a few of their brand new QC35 headphones, which are noise cancellation. They are wireless. I, I keep saying that they're the best headphones that I've ever had, and I don't just say it because they sent them to me so I can give out some listeners. It is legitimately true. So we're coming up against it. Uh, end of September, Kevin Connors from ESPN Sports Center Anchor is going to be the last guest of the month. We're going to play this out like a raffle. He's going to pick a number between one and however many reviews that I have on iTunes. That's your way to get entered into this. So you rate, subscribe, and review the Give Me a Sense podcast on iTunes. Uh, once you write that review, that's essentially your entry. Uh, and Kevin's going to basically just pick a number and one through however many, and that's your winner. And I will send you these brand new new pair of headphones. But we're going to keep with the the NFL theme. Uh, he's a good buddy of mine. Uh, in the Bay Area, we certainly know all about his work. If you're a Pac-12 Network fan, right before the NFL draft, he has been uh, an awesome resource for us at the Pac-12 Networks, evaluating a lot of our players that, that do end up playing in the NFL and play on Sundays. He's doing the same thing for Bleacher Report right now, scouting and evaluating NFL talent. He spent plenty of years with the Philadelphia Eagles as an NFL scout. John Middlecoff is with us. John, it is great to talk a little football with you, man. Thanks for popping on. No problem, Yammer. What's going on? I'm hanging in. I'm hanging in. And um, I know you're excited because I know you've been uh, seeing these Bose headphones being thrown out there on Twitter. Oh, so they look hopefully you Send me a pair. I, look, I mean, come down to the studio. I'll let you try them out for sure, and we can uh, we can evaluate. But as long as you write that review, John, you know, you're going to be entered. Maybe you just hit up Kevin Connors. I'll, I'll, and, I'll, give, you, I'll give you five stars. I'll, <laughs> I'll definitely take that. Uh, John, I, I, I wanted to get you on. I know we talked a couple of weeks back, and I wanted to have you on during the NFL season because I think there's so many people that watch the games on Saturdays, watch them on Sundays, and they think to themselves, and we hear that term all the time, NFL scout. Explain how someone actually gets a job as an NFL scout because it's not just all about former players, and we've seen that on the basketball. I remember B.J. Armstrong running into him at a basketball game yeah. and saying, why is B.J. Armstrong here? And he was, of course, you know, a great Chicago Bull, won championships, and he went that route. But, you know, you didn't play in the NFL. So how, how does someone like you get involved in this? I, actually, I didn't even play in college. Uh, you know, growing up, like, like you just said, 
I think most people thought just when you think scouts in, in pro sports, basketball, baseball, or football, it was just former players, just what they did when they, you know, finished playing. Uh, it's a really good job. They know the game well. And that, that was kind of the route that people thought you had to take. Well, for most people, you're not going to play in the NFL. Uh, most people aren't going to play in college. And really, I think the game has changed a lot in the last 20 years with, with analytics and the changing with, uh, with salary caps and the financial ramifications with players. So that's opened up a lot of avenues. I actually got in through it. I actually, in college, I went to Cal Poly. I wrote for my school newspaper, and I had a column. I, I wanted to be just like Bill Simmons, and I had a column called Johnny in the Box every Sunday. But I kind of missed uh, a couple years into doing that and being a part of a team. I always was growing up, played everything, uh, especially football, and I, I was able to get back involved with the Cal Poly football program. In my senior year, I got an unpaid internship with the Kansas City Chiefs, but it was on the business side. And I kind of started reaching out to a couple coaches, and they gave me the opportunity to help them out at night. And that kind of opened some eyes, and they kind of pointed me in the direction when I got back to Cal Poly after that fall. Uh, I didn't really get to do that much stuff, but Herm Edwards was the coach. Uh, there are a bunch of coaches on that staff now all over the league that said you got to become a GA. And that's kind of the lowest level, you know, position coach. Or And at the time, in the early 2000s or mid-2000s, a lot of programs were using that GA position to help recruiting. This was before, you know, kind of Nick Saban changed the whole recruiting landscape where you have like a borderline of GM and a personnel staff that all colleges have now from USC, all the Pac-12 colleges have them. They didn't back then when I was kind of coming up. But luckily Fresno State had a position, and my cousin had played for Pat Hill at Fresno, had a recruiting position there. And I got the gig, and, you know, they pretty much just put you on scholarship like a player. And I got to do that for a couple of years. And, you know, we got a lot of NFL players. We recruited Derek Carr. He was already committed when I got there. But that really kind of changed the game. And my, my second year, we had Ryan Matthews drafted in the – I think he went 12 or number 13 in the first round. So that year, so many scouts were coming through. And I just developed a lot of relationships, and I got – Coach Hill was friends with so he had worked for Bill Belichick and he was friends with so many people throughout the league and one person he was really close with was Andy Reid and he called him and a lot of these uh NFL teams have like this you know kind of an intern you know they pay you nothing it's like 20 grand and you pretty much just get your foot in the door and it's just like a one year audition and you get you get to do everything you know from picking up lunch to picking up players at the airport to writing scouting reports I mean, you literally, I mean, you know, you see these coaching staffs, they're not that big. I, I mean, your your office is literally all the coaches and the GM. And I got, the, I, got the, I got hired on the spot at the interview. And then it just kind of took off from there. I worked in the office for a couple of years. And I'm a California guy now. Born and raised in California. Went to college in California. My first job was at Fresno State. I'd never been out. Moving to Philly uh, was just a pretty unreal football experience for a couple of years. Working in the NFL. I was a kid in a candy store. And then my third year, Daniel Jeremiah, you know, who works for the NFL Network, took that job, and the, he was doing our West Coast, and that kind of opened up that spot. And, you know, there were some guys we – had, we had a younger staff, so a lot of guys in their mid to late 20s. But luckily, a lot of them were from the Northeast, and I was, I was begging to go back to California. I couldn't stand the cold and got that opportunity doing the, doing the Pac-12 and, 
you know, some of the, obviously the Mountain West and all the small schools out on the West Coast. And then we had a four and twelve year. So then Chip Kelly came in, and that's when things changed. But it was a uh, it was a pretty incredible three year run, just an eye opening for a kid from California that you know aspired to work in pro sports. It was definitely fun. Yeah, you know, I want to ask you about Andy Reid and Chip Kelly, but take me back, though, because you mentioned GA, and we always hear about these these guys that are helping college programs. And, and then, you, obviously, you're starting from the beginning, right? And once you get to the NFL, it's sort of a, a reset. What's the grind yeah. like? Because I think people hear, oh, it's a lot of hours. I don't think people truly can grasp what the expectation level is for a guy that's essentially making 20K and is expected to do literally anything and everything coaches are nuts i mean you know that you get to be around aliodi a little bit now i mean i i think for five months of the year they don't sleep uh they, they live in a room that's dark and just has film on and the coffee's just on rotation non-stop and then <laughs> exactly. they go out to practice and they're just screaming at people on no sleep and the craziest part is these guys i mean most you know a lot of coaches are 50 and 60 years old you know, I'm in my late 20s, and I swear to God, they have 10 times more energy. I, they're just they're just a different breed. But it is it's exciting. It's you know, it's uh, it's just a it's an incredible daily experience being around these guys in terms of the energy they bring. So it's just there there is no downtime. I mean, a lot of these coaches, you know, getting into the office between 5:30 to 6:30. And, you know, depending on college or pro, really, it's just a it's a different in the day. So in college, Sunday is like the pro Monday. And that's when you kind of review the film in the morning. And, you know, depending on if you're in the if you're flying from, you know, some destination, you may be landing in the middle of the night. Coaches then are going home, sleeping a couple hours, coming right back, breaking down that night's film. Then you start getting the game plan ready. And for the next couple of days, you're impl implementing that. And usually in college and pro, the players get a day off, you know, usually before either on a Monday or a Tuesday. And then that week starts. And really the first three or four days, coaches are probably working 18 to 20 hours. I mean, it's, an, it's insane. And the lower level guy, uh, you know, the quality control guy in the NFL or the GA, now they have some analysts. You know, Saban's got a staff of 700 people. Yeah, those guys are spending a He's lot got, like, of time. He's got like five just... former head coaches that are assistants. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know what they're doing, but clearly they're doing something well. Uh, but it's it, the amount of film that's getting broke down. I mean, these guys look for every nuance from when a guy, when a tight end is on the left side, on the right side, percentages. Just so you go into a game and any formation, any blitz, any you know personnel group you feel you have some idea of what they're going to do offensively or defensively and coaches are paranoid by nature so they always think that the guy on the other team that's game planning against them is working one more minute or 10 more minutes or one more hour that's why these guys live because they're just so competitive and ultimately and the crazy part about the sport is you see these guys you don't really get that much joy when you win but you're just so relieved when you don't lose and when you lose, it's pretty devastating. And you really, even when you do win, you don't get to enjoy it that much because you're already on to the next opponent. I mean, every time we see these coaches interviewed, I mean, you see it every Saturday. Pac-12 Network game ends. Sideline reporter Kate Scott puts the mic up. The coach goes, you know, that was a good win, but we're on to, we're on to Cal. I mean, you don't, you don't even get to breathe. 
And that was, as a personnel guy, you're not quite as invested in the game plan. It's more bigger picture, which I really like evaluating players. Cause I, I didn't have the energy to live and die with every win and loss. It's just too hard on the heart. Yeah. What's the learning curve like? Cause you made reference to it. Hey, didn't play in college, didn't play obviously at the NFL level. So how do you make sure that you are ready to evaluate and, and look at college players and have your evaluations impact how general managers are treating the draft? I had an incredible teacher in, uh, at Fresno state with Pat Hill. He had worked for a long time and he worked in the PAC 12. He worked for Belichick. He was an NFL minded guy. He had produced a bunch of NFL players. We had a bunch of NFL players on our, on our, uh, on our roster. We were playing a schedule that was nuts. I mean, UCLA, Wisconsin, Cincinnati, uh, we played everyone, and I, I and Boise was really good at the time. We were playing NFL players every Saturday, so I think you know. I mean, for a mid-major, it it was really a it was like working at a major college, and it was an experience that I think helped me out a lot in terms of seeing what they look like, seeing the way they're wired, being around first and second and third round picks every day. Uh, that experience, if I wouldn't have had those two years at Fresno State, if I would have been at a, just another lower-level college, I, I wouldn't have been ready. And there was still a huge learning curve. Uh, and then I get to the NFL, and I had a lot of guys, you know, Lewis Riddick, who works for ESPN now, Daniel Jeremiah, Phil Savage, Andy Reid, our staff. Uh, it, it was an incredible area just to learn. So the learning, the accelerated learning process, was made pretty easy because I, I was just around a lot of high level people. How, how do you how do you gain their trust quickly? I mean, because you only have, especially at the NFL level, right? I mean, you can't really afford to make a mistake because you just said, "Hey, coaches are crazy." The ones that I've been around, they it, it's sort of this perfectionist mentality. And if you're not perfect, if you're not able to execute the way you're supposed to, I mean, you you essentially can be. You know, we hear it all the time. Yeah, that, that player's in this coach's doghouse. I don't think it's. Probably the same for for personnel in, in terms of the guys that are evaluated. I think you just have to take pride in everything you do, whether it's you know going to pick up the head coach a sandwich in his exact order, make sure it's right. You know, to picking up a player, uh, to transport, taking a player to get a physical, everything they do and everything they ask, you just make sure it's done correctly, and then you just earn your trust. It just it doesn't happen overnight, but if you do things right. Uh, you always have to kind of be proactive, you know, always be, you got to got, I mean, it's kind of cliche, but, you know, be there early, stay there late. And it's just, it just either happens or it doesn't. I mean, it's a human business, so you can't really fake it. You, you may be able to fake it for a short period of time, but, you know, eventually it kind of comes out because you're around everyone so much that you can't kind of hide. So, you know, usually the first jobs you're getting, whether it's a, you know, at USC or whether it's with the Dallas Cowboys, if you're the lowest level guy, it's going to be stupid stuff. But it's really not stupid because the head coach needs you to go pick up some food because he's trying to get ready, you know, for the Oregon Ducks or for the New York Giants. And that's important that he doesn't have to waste that time because his time is pretty valuable because he doesn't have that much time. He's only got, you know, five days when you factor in all the other stuff you have to do from media obligations to, you know, meet with the trainer so everything you do just make their lives easier. They they understand it because they all started somewhere too. So if you do a good job at the, at the most, you know, the minutia, the stuff that people wouldn't even think about, that's how you really earn their trust. Not you, you're not going to be given, 
you know, who should we draft in the first round? They, they don't really care, even though you think inside like they do want you to know, or who should we, who should we offer a scholarship to? That eventually is going to come. And once they start trusting you, they ask you those questions. Uh, but I think a lot of guys try to kind of jump the gun. If you have to be patient uh, and just kind of let, you know, if you're good at what you do, or you're, you, you really, there's going to be a learning process too. So you have to be open to learning. Uh, you can't be closed-minded. You can't be stubborn. You just pretty much have to be be willing to be told to do whatever and do it at, at a fast pace because these guys, I mean, you know, you've interviewed millions of them. They are not a patient bunch. So you, And you got to be willing to kind of get – sometimes you're going to get yelled at, and it's not even they're mad at you. It's just the stress of the environment, and it, it really kind of toughens you up. All right, take me through because you spent time under two different coach, working at least in two uh, two different coaching staffs with Andy Reid in Philadelphia and then Chip Kelly when he takes over. Take me back to that initial meeting when you get this job. What's that experience like? Because it, it's an NFL job, right? I mean, there's got to be eyes wide open, this wow factor, and it's not like you're, you know, not to disrespect other organizations, but. Philadelphia Eagles is the Eagles are are one of the more prominent organizations in the league, and you have an opportunity to to work for Andy Reid. I mean, it was it was kind of lucky, you know, in terms of that's the guy that the head coach I worked for in college was really close with, and close enough to you know to make a recommendation and get me an interview. Because you see, I mean, Greg Roman today if the Buffalo Bills got fired, Rex Ryan's probably going to get fired here pretty soon. Like you're only you can't control once you start working in the NFL, whoever the head coach is. I mean, if you're working for Pete Carroll, you're going to rise to the top. I got lucky enough to work for Andy Reid, one of the most successful coaches of the last 20 years. And like you said, the Philadelphia Eagles, which, you know, are one of the marquee franchises in the league. And then Andy is just an incredible human being. I mean, I, I didn't have family or know anyone back there. My second year, he had me over for Thanksgiving. I mean, I had Thanksgiving at Andy Reid's house. I sat at the table two feet away, and we had Thanksgiving with his family. So, you know, as a, he's a better person than he is a football coach, and he's an incredible football coach. So it was intimidating. I mean, it was, it was inspiring. It was, just, it was just flat out cool. I mean, it was just really cool. You'd hear, like, in the background, the GM would be on the line, like, hey, Drew Rosenhaus on the line for you, or hey, Adam Schefter's on the line. It was like I was living fantasy football, but in real football. It was my real life. And it was just – that first year was – you kind of become numb to it over time, like we all do working in this business. But there are still times where even my second year, we played the Minnesota Vikings, and there was a uh, there was a snowstorm, and the game was supposed to be a Sunday night football, and it got pushed back to Tuesday. I don't know if you remember this, and it was like on a Tuesday night. And Brett Favre had got hurt the week before, and Brett's really close with Andy and Marty Morningwig that was on the staff. And I remember walking down the hall. And Brett was just – he had just showed up at the building to come say hi to Andy. And I remember just standing there staring, and Brett just walked by kind of looking at me like, why is this guy staring at me? Like, that's Brett Favre. <laughs> and it was just – I mean, you still kind of never lost that. This is, this is pretty cool. I um, mean, working in the NFL. But at the same time, you realize, like any job, it's not all that it's cracked up to be, but it was it, – it, it, I'll never – I mean, there were some pretty cool moments. And working for Andy – and just having that experience of how good of a human he is was was pretty special. What's a lot of times people say to me, and and next week on the show when I have Kevin Connors, I'm going to ask him about his experience. But people will say, "What's it like to interview and audition 
at ESPN and get that job? And what's it like to do that at Pac-12 Network? And they were vastly different for me and that experience. I've never heard anyone say what their interview is like. I mean, are you meeting with GM, head coach? Uh, are they quizzing you? Is there some sort of, do you give them a, a tape of and tell them what your evaluations are like? I mean, how, how do you score a job like that besides just the relationship standpoint? Well, I remember I got there and thinking I'm interviewing and, you know, I'm not naive enough to think they wouldn't interview other people. But my first experience, they sit down, they have a cafeteria. I sit down, there are two other people in suits also interviewing for this position. I'm like, oh, my God. I mean, the NFL, like the ultimate competition. And that was pretty eye-opening. And they made you evaluate players. And I think I evaluated like a safety and a running back. There's a couple guys in the league. I don't even remember who it was. And then you kind of meet, you meet with the GM. You meet with all the personnel guys. And then you just kind of talk about not even just football, but life. They're kind of getting a feel for you as a person. You're kind of seeing in the background like Andy Reid walk by or Marty Morningwood walk by. There's some players in there working out because it was, you know, during OTA. So I think OTA practice was going on. I mean, you see Deshaun Jackson walk by. I was like, whoa, this is insane. But ultimately, there were a couple other guys in suits. So you knew you kind of had to stay locked in. It was pretty intimidating, but – the couple of players I watched, I remember I had a really good feel for what they were and felt confident in my write-ups on them. And obviously I did pretty well. And I hit it off with a couple of guys and they hired me on the spot. How from, cause you're, you're new school, right? I mean, cause you're, you're one of the younger guys and I know you said their staff in general was, was fairly young, but we always, you know, especially for you being a California guy and, and certainly living in the Bay area. Now, you know, all about Billy Bean and, and Moneyball and the analytics how much has the how, have analytics changed the job of a scout and how GMs decide <clears throat> actually, where they we, want to go? Well, we, we had an analytical GM, Howie Roseman, that's actually back the GM there again. And we had a guy from Harvard, a younger guy, really, really smart, that was trying to you develop all these formulas. <laughs> yeah, you know, and he was developing all these formulas, and we'd run, you know, different queries on – you know, stat leaders and try to find, you know, the percentage of why guys fail or not. We were ahead of the curve on all that stuff. Now, me personally, even though I'm not a former player, I was more of a football guy. Like I didn't, the analytical stuff, I even had some pushback on some of our ideas. I wasn't, I didn't agree with a lot of them because I had come from a football background. I was taught by football people. So I I really, you know, for a non-player, I was kind of anti-analytics. And not anti, but I always leaned on the football side than that, especially with football. Having covered baseball now in in the Bay Area, it's so different because baseball really is a lot of individual matchups as a team sport. It's really the most unique. I mean, it really is like every pitch is like its own little stock market. Where in football, there are so many variables. The play calls, uh, you don't know what they're doing. You know, if there's an incompletion, you don't know if the quarterback – called the wrong play you don't know if the wide receiver ran the wrong route you think you know the defense but the defender might have screwed up the call uh there are so many things that you can't account for if you throw a fastball and i hit a single you know exactly what happened when football it's really the opposite and then the element you know in college you don't see it as much because you can just be so much more talented but it definitely still matters. And in the pros, it really separates guys is the intangible stuff. 
the toughness, being relentless, the mental fortitude to be able to handle 16 games. Uh, you're bound to be battling injuries, so how you know physically tough you are to being able to play on a sprained ankle. Where at Oregon or SC, even if a guy, and this is why it's so hard to scout if, to get guys in the NFL, the, the guy might just be so much better in college than his competition that that stuff doesn't kind of come to the forefront, and you're able to kind of you know, just be such a better player because you're so much more talented. We're in the NFL, it kind of all gets evened out and all the intangible stuff that you can't quantify. And that's why it makes scouting is so hard. I mean, if you're scouting human beings and you're, you're scouting in a sport that is so predicated off physicality, mental toughness, and to me, football is the ultimate academic sport because there's so much thinking involved. There's so much studying involved. And it's hard to account for all that stuff. And that's why it's, it's hard to, you know, find good players and why so many guys, I think, fail because there's so much more to it than the, than just the physical attributes. What's the difference between working for Andy Reid and then Chip Kelly? Because I know Chip from the Oregon school of, of football and how he did things, secretive and, and the whole, whole nine. And obviously now he's with the Niners. But in terms yeah. of a, a, a leadership I don't know. I, you talked about Andy Reid and how great he was as a person. I, I don't know if you have that type of relationship with Chip, but what's the difference fundamentally on how they run an organization and their team? Well, we'll see what's tough sometimes when you're a college scout is by the time Chip came there, and I had met him a couple times when I went through Oregon and we had known each other. Uh, I mean, just really briefly, but he knew exactly who I was is that when you don't work in the office, you don't get a great feel for an, the everyday stuff. Then you go for meetings, you just see kind of a uh, so it's kind of a short-sighted view. Now he was involved in our personnel meetings. We actually kind of had a disagreement. Uh, he actually won in the short term. I, I think I won in the long term. I wasn't that big on Matt Barkley coming out for us in Philly. You know, I didn't think it made much sense, especially with the offense he was going to run, uh, the cold elements. Yeah, I think Matt, if he was going to have success in the NFL, had to be in kind of a warmer climate you know, like Arizona where he's at now or L.A. or San Francisco. But Chip's, you know, Chip had, when he was at Oregon, his direct experience was with a lot of guys, like whether they played well or didn't play well against him. And obviously, why wouldn't he? So he liked Matt because Matt had played well against them, really well. Uh, I think one year Lane beat him, and Matt was lights out. And even in the year I think SC lost, Matt's senior year, Matt was really good. Uh, and I just, we kind of disagreed. We kind of got into an argument. Not really, he just kind of started talking, and it's, I realized that probably new head coach wasn't the right tactic, you know, to take. And then after that, you know, it was kind of, I knew they were probably going to go in a different direction, but I was still adamant that Matt Barkley wouldn't work there, and safe to say that I was right on that one. You know what's weird? I remember those first, that first draft and the second one. It seemed like he kept stockpiling Pac-12 players. Like, it almost became a running joke with some of the guys, at least in, in uh, it, but it, But it wasn't really, like, it was It was funny because what, what are you doing? And I think you saw the other two prominent Pac-12 coaches that had so much success in the NFL were Jim Harbaugh and Pete Carroll. And one attribute they had is you can't be too loyal to your college players. You have to be more open-minded because there's so much talent around the country. And you, you see it the first three or four weeks when these Pac-12 teams are playing all these other conferences. You go, wow, 
Oregon's playing Michigan State. They just got all these players. But if you're not watching Michigan State, you wouldn't realize just how much talent they have. You know, it's easy to know Alabama has talent. But sometimes even you play a smaller school, you know, like some of these Pac-12 teams play UC Davis or Grambling State, and they may have a guy that really stands out. Well, a guy stands out probably because he's an NFL player, and he might be a second-round pick. He might be better if you put that guy at, you know, Weber State or Grambling State, just the one individual player on a Pac-12 team. He might be one of their best players. But just for whatever happened, he got there. And I think that's what Chip kind of struggled with, is being more open-minded to a lot of the guys at different universities, non-West Coast. And you have to be. And Pete Carroll, if you remember, took Earl Thomas, passed on Taylor Mays, and that was a really big deal. Jim Harbaugh didn't land any of the – he didn't draft the uh, Stanford guys, which kind of turned out to be a mistake. But they they had different relationships like Richard Sherman and Doug Baldwin. But you can't be so hard-headed that I just need to have my guy. And he kept drafting Oregon guys. And I, I think that also plays into he needs guys that really understand his system because it is so unique. The way they run practice is so much different than any other, you know, program, especially in the National Football League. So we needed a lot of those guys, but they weren't always the most talented. And you have to be willing uh, to coach. I, I think Moose Johnson, we had him on our radio show a couple years ago, and he said the key to the NFL is you have to have characters, guys of high character that can play. And also, or I mean, characters like bad, questionable characters that can play, and also players of character. There has to be a balance. And Chip was just so big on character. And you saw over the couple years in Philly, it kind of went the other way because he didn't just have enough. Sometimes you just have to learn to coach Deshaun Jackson, even if he is kind of questionable. And he's not that bad. You know, it's one thing to cut a, a guy that gets arrested, a Greg Hardy situation, a domestic violence, no doubt about it. But some guys, just because they don't necessarily listen or sleep in meetings, we're we're in college, no matter what, who you are, you're getting screamed at, you're getting yelled at. We're in the NFL, you know, if, if, you know, Lawrence Taylor is sleeping through meetings, you just kind of got to let it happen. Yeah, different roles for different players is the way I would describe it. It's funny, John, because what you're explaining, I I didn't put two and two together because Ronnie Lott, who was the first guest on this podcast, Ronnie is in our studios all the time. And he always tells me about guys and some of his teammates. And he says, who knows where some of these guys would be without football. But at the same time, you could tell just that dog mentality that some of those guys had that were not necessarily so obedient, (laughs) you know, not to. to And and that's why the key, that's why the key is your highest character guy has to be your best player. Because then he can keep a pulse. Like when you have Ronnie Lott in your locker room, you can have Charles Haley, and Ronnie can just handle him. Well, if you are the stories about Charles Haley, by the way, are they that known? Because he's the guy that I'm actually referring to. They're true. They're true. They're you should have Charles Haley on your podcast. It'll break the record for downloads. They are true, and the stories are true about Ronnie containing him. There was a story one time when Ronnie went to the Oakland Raiders. Charles was so mad that he left. They're playing the 49ers. It was, I think it was a regular season game early in the season. And after the game, Charles is just going nuts for whatever reason, just because he's kind of crazy. They had to go into the Raiders locker room and be like, hey, Ronnie, can you come over here and contain Charles? And he came and calmed him down. And I, I think there are a lot of guys like that in the NFL, you know, the Larry Fitzgeralds. Uh, the Tom Brady's, I think Peyton was like that. They just have a pulse on their locker room. And when they tell someone to relax, when they tell someone 
when they just speak, everyone listens. And that's, that's really important in, in pro football, M- more than college, because in college it's really your coach and the coaching staff that kind of sets that tone. We're in the pros. You know, it's much more of a business. And that's what Andy Reid's really – that's what makes Andy unique is he kind of has a college football feel to him. People love him, players, coaches. But he treats it like a business, but when he talks, anyone will listen, whether it's a guy that's made $100 million or whether it's an undrafted free agent. That's, I think Pete Carroll has that. You know, I think Jim Harbaugh kind of struggled with that just because he's kind of a different personality. It's, it, it's hard. I mean, not, it's just a, it's a rare breed of guy that kind of has that balance. I think Tom Coughlin, as he got older, kind of developed that balance you know, being a hard ass, but being, being a relationship guy, because again, you're, you're dealing with humans, you know, you're not dealing with robots. So, you know, regardless how much money you make, regardless, people still just want to be treated like people. How difficult you, you made some comments early on in this podcast about guys that make it to that next level as a former scout. Can you paint a picture of just how difficult it is for a guy to make it to the NFL? I mean, it's so hard. I mean, there's, especially now, there's so much competition. There's so many good players. Uh, you know, if you're not a first or second round pick, the Kansas City Chiefs, I think, just cut a third rounder two days ago. There's really no guarantee. Like, just because you get drafted, that does not mean you're guaranteed a roster spot. They're going to have undrafted free agents. The competition. In training camp, I mean, every rep is analyzed. Every player on every roster is not, you know, a starter is being evaluated to be an upgrade. So just because even if you make the team on that big cutdown, the next day if I can claim a better player at your position, I may cut you because you're the 53rd man, you know, guy on the team. The the other thing that's pretty eye-opening, you know, you see really good players in college, like high level you think are superstars, but they may have an attribute that doesn't translate to the next level. Like if you're a corner and you're a really good player in college, if you're not the fastest corner, it's going to be hard to play in the NFL if you're a 4 five, 5 guy. That's one position that you have to be able to run. You, you may dominate in college because you're either bigger, you're smarter, uh, you're just more developed. But in the pros, if you can't run, you were in trouble. I mean, you saw last night, Darrell Revis' speed is diminishing at a pretty dramatic pace. He's in major trouble. Like, he's not going to be able to play corner if he can't run. Regardless how smart he is, how much experience he has, if he cannot run, he can't do it. And there are other positions that, like in, in, at quarterback, some of the attributes, like you don't need the biggest arm if you are really accurate, if you are really intelligent, if you are – it's really more functional intelligence, too. That's something else I learned. It doesn't matter if you're a 4.0 student or a 2.0 student. If you learn football, if your football intelligence is really high, that's really all that matters. You know, Frank Gore, when he played for the 49ers, is not the smartest guy outside of football, but he is a football savant. Like, there is nothing you could tell him football-wise that he can't handle. So his GPA or his Wonderlick score coming out is completely irrelevant. I, I think Jason Kidd, I, I heard a story one time. It took him like five times to get the minimum SAT score to get into Cal. Jason Kidd is arguably one of the smartest NBA basketball players ever. Like his basketball IQ is just off the charts. And that's something that you have to learn like when you're scouting players. Because sometimes you go into a school and a guy's an awful student. You go, this guy's just a moron. 
well, he may not be football-wise, and, and that's what you're trying to find out. Just like if, as a broadcaster, if you're really good when the camera comes on and you're the host and you can, you have, you're an incredible interviewer, you're great with teases, you're smooth, that's, that's all that matters if I'm hiring a broadcaster, you know, if I'm just trying to evaluate the talent. And that's, I think that's something that really separates people because it's easy to get down on a human because, again, we're all humans when you hear someone's really dumb. Because you, oh, that guy's not going to make it, and that's that's one thing I kind of struggled with. But you know, as time went on, you're around it more. You learn that that it just matters how well that he picks up, you know, the sport. John, best. I was going to ask you the best prospect, but because of what you just said, I'll ask you the smartest guy that you ever scouted, and then the most talented guy you ever scouted. Uh, well, my first couple of years, I was doing the NFL, like the pro guys. So, you know, I saw – I pretty much watched every guy around the league. I mean, I mean, it's got to be – I mean, Peyton Manning was in his prime for Indy. Like when I – or maybe toward the end of his prime, but he was still so good. Him, him and Brady, I mean, they were just – they were really kind of the Larry Bird and magic of, of my generation. And they took the NFL to a whole other level. And we played both those two teams when I worked in the office, both of them at home. So I – live i mean it was it was pretty incredible and i've had people some of my friends i never got to do this but chip did a joint practice with brady in new england and my buddies at scout they got to go to the practice just saying watching tom brady operate in practice is just an absolute clinic i mean belichick doesn't have to worry about the offense because brady just basically runs it and i mean he's got to be him and manning are going have to go down as two of the smartest you know quarterbacks ever In, in college and I'll stand by this. Deion Jordan coming out of Oregon was an absolute freak. Yep. Uh, but that, that's a good example of why the character stuff. And another thing we haven't really talked about is the fit. You know, whenever you're drafted, there are so many variables. Like, who's going to be your position coach? Who are the other guys in your, in your unit, like if you're a defensive lineman or a linebacker, that you sit next to in meetings? Are they good guys or are they bad guys? Uh, what's the scheme they're going to ask you to do? Because he got drafted, he was a 3-4 outside linebacker, he got drafted to a 4-3 team. Uh, he had turned his life around, where Chip loved him. He was the leader of that team. And then he goes to Miami, uh, so far away, obviously, from Oregon, uh, where his life was on the straight and narrow, and obviously an area where there's you know some temptation to, to get off track. And he was in a, four, a bad scheme, a coaching staff that was about to get fired, and clearly he got derailed because he was, I thought he should have been a, a, a high-level, Pro Bowl-level talent. And that's like, did, did I miss on the talent? Or did just the character kind of come to, you know, did that play into the failure? Really, that's what I, you know. I think there's a lot of guys like that where, for example, Johnny Manziel. More than likely, he just was never talented enough to be a good player. But he was talented enough to stick in the NFL for a while. And I, I doubt he ever plays in the NFL again. And you, you, whenever you're dealing with 21, 22-year-olds, you're paying them. Most of us, like as we get older in our profession, we earn more and more money. I mean, that's a gradual progression, right? You know, you usually make the most you're ever going to make as you get older. Well, in, in pro sports, it's, it's kind of the opposite because you're paid an absolute – the minimum these guys are making is half a million dollars. Like, that's a minimum if you're an undrafted free agent. If you're a high pick, you're making millions. I don't care. That's 
and if you're especially if you're a a guy that has some immaturity or some character stuff, I mean that's hard to handle. And a lot of these guys coming from lower income, you know, backgrounds have so many people in their life asking for handouts, and so many of these guys are good guys at heart. I can't imagine having that element also. I mean, it's just there's so many variables at play. But you know, it's just we just stay out bust. Oh, he failed. You know, I I don't ever think it's just that basic. He just failed because he wasn't good enough. I think there's the rare case when the guy just, you know, wasn't talented enough and he was really overdrafted. But Deion Jordan was talented enough. Like, he he warranted a top five pick. But, you know, he, he played a massive role into it, but so did other people. There were variables outside of his control. It's got to be really cool, though, when you get it right. Because of all those variables that you just made reference to, and it's not an exact science, and talked to plenty of coaches uh, the last few years about this when they evaluate, hey, who could be good at that next level? Man, it's got to be the best feeling when you're finally right and you get to see that play out on, on a Sunday, for example. Uh, that is just – that's awesome. Yeah, it was at the college level when you were doing it, also on Saturdays as well. I mean, that's that's got to be very, very gratifying. Um, John, I, I – introduced you and I made reference to Bleacher Report and, and, and doing some of the stuff that you're doing uh, for them with regard to their NFL coverage. You have, and I'm not just saying this because we're buds and you've come on with us on the Pac-12 Network, uh, you have killed it in the, I don't listen to a lot of terrestrial radio uh, myself when it comes to uh I love to sports that term, talk. terrestrial radio. It you sounds know so archaic. You, exactly. You know where that came from? All my days working at Sirius no, Radio. I, 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 I don't. I, I've just heard that since I started working in radio. I I had never, ever referred to it as that, but I mean, that's what everyone calls it. Yeah, it's crazy because when I graduated school, one of my first jobs, my first real job was at Sirius Radio, and everyone kept calling it terrestrial radio, which is what you listen to when you're in your cars. And, and I was like, what's this yeah. terrestrial radio thing? And it's just, well, it's just not satellite radio. It's what you get there. But you have absolutely destroyed it on radio. Uh, the chemistry guy, Haberman, who's one of your buddies, and you guys go way, way, way back, um, and obviously is a guy that works with us at Pac-12 Network. It has been a pleasure. So tell me professionally now, like sort of where, where you guys are at. Yeah, our show just actually came to an end. We we had an incredible three-year run. Uh, what came to an end in 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 terms of we're no longer going to be on 95.7 The Game, but we definitely plan on to continue it, whether it's a podcast, whether it's on another radio station. We uh, we don't plan on going anywhere. You know, the Bay Area is our home. It's just it's kind of like the NFL. There are things out of your control in business, and it was an incredible opportunity to work with I mean, you know Guy. I mean, he's one of the more talented yeah. young guys probably in the country. I mean, there's just not many people that could host shows and also call games. And I'm talking every yeah. game. I mean, he, yeah. he can call baseball, basketball, and football. That's that's pretty rare. I mean, you get some guys that can do two of the three, but especially baseball, that's, that's really hard to call. I mean, that's a massive difference from basketball and football that are much more high-paced. And, you know, he's got a personality. He's a, he's a radio host. I mean, he can yeah. he's really good at it. And he's one of my best friends. And he's one of my closest friends, and it was a uh, it was as gratifying an experience as I've ever had, and it was it was uh, it was awesome. But we 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 plan on continuing it. We've we've built we've spent a lot of effort and time building something in the Bay Area, and uh, we plan on continuing it in the very near future, especially during football season. You know, you gotta I got opinions, Mike. I, I got hot yeah. takes on games. Uh, I mean, we got sure. we got S, we, we got SC Stanford tomorrow. I mean, it doesn't get any better uh, than that. It, so it really. Game. It does not get better than that. Uh, and look, and I, I, 
I can empathize because I've had that experience before, whether it was at ESPN um, and I got to do shows and be on the desk with Kevin Connors, who induces Rogers, who are two of my closest friends. And then here at Pac-12 Network, we had Rick Neuheisel, who became one of my best friends and getting to do shows with Lamar Hurd and Kevin O'Neill, who've become uh, you know yeah. great friends to me. That experience, man, is on a professional level. And you could tell listening to your show with Guy, just what you guys had. Can I can I say that it's the craziest thing? I don't want to bash anyone, but I, you guys were in the midday and I'm not killing anyone else's show and I'm not going to say who they are, but how the heck you guys weren't drive time afternoon. I'm just going to leave it at that in the Bay area was mind boggling to me because I, I think you guys carried that station at least uh, from a, a, a show perspective. I actually don't even think it was close. So can't wait to find out what uh, the next endeavor is for you guys as a team. Obviously, the chemistry is abundantly clear. But, John, I, I can't thank you enough for for popping on the show, man. Really fascinating to hear some of the stories that you guys uh, that you had around some of the players, some notable guys, and obviously your time with Philadelphia. So thank you so much for the insight, man. You're the man, Yammer. Uh, look forward to seeing you soon and uh, enjoy the weekend of football. I can't thank John enough for popping on the show with us. And obviously we had that that conversation last week. And as he made reference to a big week of football, it is always a big week of football. Uh, Very quickly here, want to also just kind of promote this. I know I made reference to this throughout the podcast. Kevin Connors is going to be with us uh, next week on the show. He is the guy that's going to be in charge of deciding he's the ultimate decision maker on who wins a brand new pair of Bose QC35 headphones noise cancellation absolutely wireless all you have to do is head to iTunes rate subscribe and review that podcast Kev will pick a number between one and however many reviews that we have and uh, that person that number whoever corresponds to that number I will send you a brand new pair of headphones that retail for $350 they are absolutely amazing and if you don't even need the headphones it's all good believe me they are the best gift that anyone is ever going to get so just some cool stuff there I love the feedback continue to send it my way on Twitter at Mike underscore yam Uh, not to mention on my Facebook page Mike Yam. And of course, you know, just let people know. I mean, if you like some episodes, tell some of your friends and, and get the word out. But once again, give me a sense podcast, rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We will see you and talk to you, I should say, next week.